This is Dina Weiss for Hadar on Parashat Kedoshim, Sacrality in Seclusion. At the beginning of this week's Parsha, God demands holiness from us, Kedoshim Tihiyu. God wants us to realize a higher version of ourselves through refining our attitudes and behaviors. God wants us to be better than ordinary human beings by tapping into our capacity for holiness and excellence. However, holiness at its core is designation and separation. And a drive towards holiness can also be isolating, driving a wedge between us and our family and neighbors who do not have the same religious or spiritual ambitions. How do we know when we are truly being holy and when do we run the risk of becoming holier than thou? How do we prevent our quest for holiness from having negative interpersonal effects? The Midrash in Vayikar Rabbah provides a strategy, a technique for how to become holy. Amar HaKadosh Baruch Hu LeMoshe Leich Amor LeYisrael Banai, Keshem Sh'ani Parush, Kach Tihiyu Prushim Keshem Sh'ani Kadosh the Holy Blessed One said to Moshe, Go and say to Israel, My children, just as I am separate, so you should be separate. Just as I am holy, so you should be holy. As it is written, you shall be holy. According to this section of the Midrash, God is not demanding a quality of holiness that is abstract or ethereal. God is demanding holiness as a practice. Separate yourself and you will become holy. This type of holiness is more manageable and imaginable than an abstract call to be like God, but it is also somewhat dangerous. We could become more self-righteous than truly righteous, elevating ourselves above our peers instead of ascending to God. Rabbinic literature addresses this concern when it forbids certain pious practices on account of yuhara presumptuous behavior. The rabbis understand that sometimes a quest for holiness will lead one to supererogatory behavior, to exceeding the minimum demanded by the law, or not allowing oneself to employ leniencies that other people regularly do employ. One of the areas of concern for an appropriate stringency is the recitation of the Shema by a bridegroom on his wedding night. The Mishnah assumes that a man who is getting married might be too preoccupied to do this mitzvah properly, and therefore he is typically exempt. The Mishnah later debates whether or not a groom can choose to say the Shema anyway. Chatan imrotzelikrot kriyat Shema laila rishon kore. Rabban Shema Megamliel Omer, lokolarotzeli tolet Hashem yitol. If a groom wants to recite the Shema on the first night of his marriage, he may. Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel says, not everyone who wants to may utter God's name. It seems that the majority opinion in this Mishnah, the rabbis collectively, allows for a person to be strict with themselves. The rabbis allow him to recite the Shema, which declares God's existence and unity, even when the letter of the law allows him to take a night off. Yet Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel objects to this presumptuous behavior, exclaiming that if a person recites the Shema when they are not commanded, they display an arrogant over-familiarity with God, which is not appropriate. And the Talmudic commentary in this passage frames the debate explicitly in terms of yuhara. Yuhara. 
Zitnan, Makom Shanahagu lasso Malacha Betish Abba Avosin. Makom Shanahagu shall low lasso ain Osin. Vehoma com Tamide Chachamim Betelim. Rabban Shimon Begam Leal Omer, Leolam Yaser, Kol Adam at that smote, Ketamid Chacham. Derabanan Adarabanan, Lokasha. Kriachma, Kavan de Hule Ama Kakaru, Vihunami Kari, Lo Mechaze Kayuhara. Hacha kevan de chule ama avde melacha viihu lo ka avid mechaze kiyuhara. De rabban shimon bengam liel ad rabban shimon bengam liel lo kashia. Hatam bechavanat haya milta. Vanan sade de lo mati lechavni date. Aval hacha haroe omer melacha hu de enlo. Pokhazi kama batlane ika bashuga. Does this mean to say that rabban shimon bengam liel is concerned about yuhara and the rabbis are not concerned? But didn't we learn the opposite? As we learned in a Mishnah, in a place where the practice is to do labor on nine av, it may be done. But in a place where the practice is not to do labor, then labor is forbidden. And in any place, Torah scholars should be idle. Rabban Shema ben Amliel says, a person should always make themselves like a Torah scholar and refrain from work. The rabbis don't actually contradict themselves. In the case of the recitation of the Shema, since everyone else is reciting, and he is as well, it does not appear to be Yuhara. However, in the case of laboring on Tish Ab'av, since everyone else is doing labor and he does not, it does appear to be Yuhara. Rabban Shema ben Gamliel also does not contradict himself. In the case of the Shema, the matter is dependent on intent, and we have evidence that a groom can't focus his mind. But in the case of laboring on Tisha B'Av, anyone who sees will say that he doesn't have any work to do. Go and see how many idle people there are in the market. The Talmudic discussion contrasts two areas of law where one might be seen to display yuhara, saying the Shema is a bridegroom and refraining from labor on the ninth of Av in a place where it is not the custom. And one is not considered to be a Torah scholar who would always refrain from labor, even if they are in a city where work is traditionally done on that day. In both of these cases, the claim of Yuhara is neutralized when the behavior is not noticeable. Everyone recites the Shema, and there are many unemployed workers. It appears, therefore, that Yuhara is not about the overly pious behavior itself, which is not inherently problematic, but it is about displaying this piety in view of others. This understanding that the core prohibition of yuhara stems from how one presents oneself to other, rather than how one conducts oneself in private, is supported by another case of possible yuhara found in Masechet Sukkah. There, the Talmud distinguishes between meals, which must be eaten in the Sukkah, and snacks, which may be eaten anywhere, including one's regular home. The second chapter of the tractate, discusses the minimum amount of food considered significant enough to trigger a requirement to eat in the sukkah. Yet the fifth Mishnah there records a variation of rabbinic practices when it comes to where they would actually eat food that does not constitute a meal because it is insubstantial in kind or in quality. Ma'aseh ve'heviu lo l'rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai lit'omet ha'tavshil u'l'rabban Gamliel shnei kotavod u'deli shalmayim v'yamru ha'alum la'sukah u'cheshenatnu lo l'rabbi Tzadok l'achol pachot mi'chabetza n'talo b'mapa v'yachlo chutz la'sukah v'lo b'reich acharav. Ma'aseh li'stor? 
Chesiri Machsara Vahachikatani, Yimbala Hachmir Alatsmo Machmir. A story. They once brought Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai a taste of the dish, and Rabban Gamliel two dates and a cup of water. And they said, bring them up to the sukkah. And when they gave food, presumably including bread, to Rabbi Tzadok, he ate less than an egg's worth. Holding it in a napkin so he would not have to wash his hands, and he ate it outside of the sukkah and didn't make a blessing over it. Is this story meant to contradict? The Mishnah is actually missing a section, and this is how it should be read. One who wants to be distinguished with himself may do so. The Talmud finds these rabbinic anecdotes perplexing. First, the very beginning of this Mishnah con- seems to contradict the principle set forth earlier that drinks and small snacks do not need to be eaten in the sukkah. Second, we don't have a consistency of practice within this Mishnah itself. The first two rabbis, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai and Rabbi Gamliel, go the extra mile to eat everything, no matter how small, in the sukkah. Whereas the third, Rabbi Tzadok, seems eager to demonstrate the opposite, that even something which is almost a meal can be confidently treated like a snack, eaten outside of the sukkah, and concluded without a full birkat hamazon. The Talmud resolves these seeming contradictions by modifying the Mishnah, to say that its general guidelines around what to eat in the sukkah are only minimums. No one is to be criticized for adhering to these standards by eating snacks outside of the sukkah, but also no one is to be criticized for going above the law by refusing to eat even the tiniest bite outside of the sukkah walls. But why isn't it, Yuhara, to choose to eat in the sukkah when it is not clearly required? Isn't this arrogant and pompous behavior? It appears that it is not considered problematic because Yuhara doesn't apply in the privacy of your own home. And the sukkah is your own home for the duration of the holiday. The problem only arises when these pious practices are conducted in full view of everyone and in public spaces. Understanding the contours of Yuhara is the first step to understanding when it is problematic. But we need to go a bit deeper to understand why. Why does keeping it private make the behavior completely unproblematic and possibly even laudatory? It will help us to touch on one more area of Jewish law. There are a number of rabbinic policies that govern the use of private and public property. One of these enactments permits a person to walk on private property that is adjacent to a public road in order to avoid road pegs. Any person may trespass onto the edges of privately held land if the public road is not easily passable. The Talmud recounts the story of a person who did not want to avail himself of this right, therefore displaying yuhara. Rabbi Rabbi Chia Havu Shakli Ve'azli Ba'orcha Istalku L'Tzidei Hadrachim Hayak Kamafsiya Ve'azil Rabbi Yehuda Ben Kenosa Kamayhu Amar Le Rabbi Chia Mihu Zeh Shemar Eg Gedula B'Fanenu Amarle Rabbi Chia, Shema Rabbi Yehuda ben Kenosa, Talmidihu, Vechol Ma'asar Vashem Shamayim. Ki matu legabei chaziyai. Amarle, Ilav Yehuda ben Kenosa at, Gezartinu l'shakcha begizra de parzala. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi and Rabbi Chia were walking on the road. They veered onto the private sidewalks, while Rabbi Yehuda ben Kenosa stepped straight along the main road in front of them. Rabbi therefore said to Rabbi Chia, Who is this? 
who demonstrates greatness before us. Rabbi Chia replied, maybe he is Rabbi Yehuda ben Kenosa, who is my disciple and does all of his deeds for the sake of heaven. When they cut off to him, they saw that it was indeed him. And Rabbi Chia said to him, had you not been Yehuda ben Kenosa, I would have sawed off your legs with an iron saw. Rabbi and Rabbi Chia see a figure in front of them who is unwilling to avail himself of the leniency to avoid obstructions in the road. Rabbi Chia interprets this behavior as a Yuhara-type display of greatness, meant to insult other people. Rabbi Chia is willing to interpret that this person's motivations might be pure and not a display of inappropriate arrogance, but nevertheless he doesn't want to encourage it. In fact, he all but threatens Rabbi Yehuda ben Kenosa with extreme censure for his behavior. It seems that Rabbi is not concerned for Rabbi Yehuda's character. What he's concerned about are the real implications of his behavior. What starts out as an individual's personal choice can come to shift the standard and determine what should and should not be done. His behavior could make people feel embarrassed or unwilling to take advantage of the rights that are theirs. True, no person is obligated to exercise their rights, but we are all obligated to make sure that other people feel comfortable availing themselves of what is due to them. The problem is not strictly about portraying oneself as different or special, which would apply in private settings as well. The concern is about implying to other people that this unnecessary stringency is something they could or should be observing. A second element of the dangers of Yuhara can be adduced elsewhere from Rabbi Akiva's approach to prayer. This was the practice of Rabbi Akiva. When he would pray with the congregation, he would curtail his prayers and rise so as not to inconvenience the community. But when he would pray alone, a person could leave him in one corner and find him in a different corner. Why was he moving to this extent? Because of all of the bending and bowing. Here, Rabbi Akiva is less concerned about his behavior and more concerned about his attitude. Nothing he is doing is actually changing the prayers, but he is concerned that his enthusiasm might have a shaming effect on others, who are perhaps less enthusiastic. It is certainly not the most pious of attitudes to find prayer an inconvenience or to complain if it takes too long. It is, however, a very ordinary feeling. Most people, even those who love to pray, can start to feel some urgency to leave when forced to spend more time in prayer than planned. Yet Rabbi Akiva did not try to influence the other people whom he was praying with to feel differently or to value prayer more. He did not try to compel them to pray for a longer time or with more enthusiasm. Not only was he not trying to make the ordinary people conform to him, he curtailed his own religious proclivities in order to blend in with them. Rabbi Akiva's positive example highlights the other danger of Yuhara. An, overt, an overly and overtly zealous approach can subtly or not so subtly suggest to others that they need to be more pious. It could make others feel bad. Our Parsha touches upon this concern when it outlines the mitzvah of rebuke. Lo tisnat achicha bilvavecha, hocheach tochiach etamitecha, 
Do not hate your brother in your heart, rather rebuke your fellow and you will not bear sin on his account. The plain sense of this verse is that if we don't let others know what they have done wrong, they will continue to sin and we will bear their sin on our account. However, the Talmud and Arachin understands the clause of you will not bear sin on his account very differently. Is it possible that he must continue to rebuke even if the person he is rebuking shows distress on his face? The verse says, and you will not bear sin on his account. In this rabbinic reading of the verse, the concern over bearing sin is not that I will be responsible for the sin of another if I don't rebuke him, but rather that I will be responsible for my own sin that came about through rebuking another in a way that was cruel, embarrassing, or hurtful. Even where there is a requirement to explicitly chastise someone, one has to be careful not to make them feel bad. This concretizes our understanding that one may not chastise someone indirectly by implying that there is something wrong with their practice, even if there isn't. Yuhara does exactly this, implying that there is something insufficient about the practice of others by showing yourself off as better than them or holier. We often think that the choices that we make about our own behavior are primarily about us and what we think we should do. However, as soon as what we are doing becomes public, other people see our actions as a referendum on what they should do. We need to be sensitive to the possible negative impacts, even unintended, of our righteous behavior. Even if our intentions are pure and we are not being self-righteous, someone could interpret our behavior as an insult to them, making them feel uncomfortable and like they don't measure up. To be holy is to be separate, not because separation makes one holy. Holiness requires separation, since we may only act in an overly pious or strict way in the privacy of our own home and mind. Holiness is dangerous. It may lead us to subtly condemn others and unintentionally make them feel inadequate. Therefore, it needs to be restricted to the areas of the world and heart where we are alone with God and are free to be holy like Him. Wishing you a Shabbat of holiness and humility. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to our weekly Debray Torah. To see more from our archive, please visit hadar.org slash Torah.